Welcome to My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. Are you on track for a secure retirement? If things go badly in the markets, will my nest egg still last? How do changing tax rules impact consumer savings and spending strategies? How do I know my financial advisor is competent and ethical? How do I organize my financial life? We'll answer important personal finance questions like these and so much more. And we'll do it in a way that makes a dry, arcane topic engaging and entertaining. And now, here are your hosts, JR and Jessica. Aloha and welcome to episode five of My Two Cents. I'm Jessica Lani Rich, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Honolulu-based financial planner, J.R. Robinson. J.R. is the owner of Financial Planning Hawaii and also the co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. Good afternoon, J.R. Aloha, Jessica, and good afternoon. And... Uh... Great to see you. I I know we uh, I know we talked a little bit about this um, after the show last week, but um, I've got to say I'm kind of pleased with how this program is developing. And uh, for the benefit of our listening audience, I'm a total radio newbie. Okay, uh, this is my first radio show experience, but Jessica has a long history in radio and TV, both as a host and on the production side. And in fact, that's how we met. So uh, four or five months ago, she had me on as a guest on her local cable show, Inspire You and Me, that airs on KWHE-TV Channel 4 in Honolulu. And um, I mentioned that because I know, you know, from speaking with you and from your experience, uh, Jessica, that you, you know building an audience from scratch is no easy task, right? I'm you know. That's correct. <laughs> and uh, <yeah. laughs> anything <Yeah>. for that matter. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I'm, I'm not sure um, that any of the national radio show hosts are threatened by our presence yet. But the um, through the first four episodes, uh, my two cents seems to be resonating well. And we seem to be striking a chord. Um, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with we're trying to make this an approachable, informal sort of intervo- interview talk show format. And that we're using, and you're doing a really good job of keeping the conversation flowing and keeping me from going too far off the rails. So thank you for that. Well, also, you have such great information that I think everyone needs at this time, JR. But before we launch into the topic of the day, what do you say that we recap our purpose and also maybe share some resource information that you might have? Yeah, I think I think that's a great place to start. Um, so, since we're beginning to develop a little bit of a following, anyway, I thought it w- I thought it might be a good day to uh, good idea to start today's show with um, exactly that a, a recap of what our purpose is. And to those of you who are turning into my two cents for the first time, um, the purpose of this show is really to educate and inform consumers about important topics in financial planning and personal finance, and to do so in a format that is engaging and entertaining. And as you'll hear, I, I am intentionally a little bit irreverent, and I often have it's strong... Smart. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and I will be in this show. I promise I will be in this show. Um, I'll vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, uh, you know, I have strong opinions, and and this show conveniently gives me the opportunity to air those, and hence the show's title is My Two Cents. Um, but I also want to make clear that when I do that, I'm not just making stuff up. I try to the, try to make sure that the positions that I take are well supported, and that they come from a place that always, always, always places the consumer's interest first. 
And our listeners should know that I am an absolute zealot when it comes to consumer protection and uh, in, the, in the financial planning and investing space. And that unlike some other radio show hosts, I'm not here to promote anything, um, not my own practice, anything zip, not a zilch. I'm not looking for nor accepting new clients. My company, Financial Planning Hawaii, is a mature practice, and we only take new clients from existing client referrals. Um, my software company, Nest Egg Guru, is a subscription-based application, but our subscribers are financial advisors, not other consumers. So uh, in short, I'm, we're doing this because I'm passionate about the subject matter, and I really thought it'd be fun to try. So um, I hope you're enjoying the experience too, Jessica. Absolutely. And, and I feel really fortunate. And I really appreciated what you just said also, JR, because I think for our listeners and for myself, because I know you and I'm getting to know you uh, more, uh, you're a man of integrity and you're, you're here for a really good intent to educate the consumers and you're looking out for them. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give a label, I'm going to give a label to you that you haven't expected, you <laughs> <Okay>. know, who, <laughs> you know, who Ralph Nader is, right? That yeah, he looks up. For consumers, okay. Well, you're the financial plan. You're the Ralph Nader for financial <laughs> planners for consumers who uh, who want who care about their finances. And you know, I love radio, and I love getting a lot of positive feedback for the show. And over the last couple of weeks, I know that we've be, we've started to, re- to get some inquiries through Voice America homepage about how to follow your commentary in other formats. Is there any other way that listeners can gain access to your content? Definitely. Um, So all listeners are welcome to visit the Financial Planning Hawaii website at fphawaii.com, short for Financial Planning Hawaii, fphawaii.com. And um, the media page, uh, the media link on the homepage has links to lots of my recent content. And in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, there's also a subscribe link. And visitors can go to that to sign up for the newsletter that I, I call it a monthly newsletter. But as a practical matter, I really only get to do it a couple of, uh, basically every other month. And the primary purpose of that newsletter is to help educate and engage my clients and to keep them informed about important rule changes and things as they come up. So um, as with this show, I write the newsletter to be engaging. I want clients to read it. It's got to be, it's got to have some humor in it and entertainment value. And it's totally free. If you subscribe to the newsletter, I assure you, you will not receive any form of advertising, no solicitation from me or my company. But if you want to, if you like what we're doing on the show and you want to follow that Further, that's how you can do it. Um, also, I should mention, um, if you have constructive feedback or if you have ideas for future shows, please feel free to, to, to email me at info at fphawaii.com. That's info at fphawaii.com. Um, it's hard to come up with new show ideas every week. I've got a bunch still planned, but if you guys have other ideas, I'd love to hear them. And, you, and, and your contact information is so easy to remember as well. That sounds really good, JR. And really, thank you for sharing that. But now let's get into the show. The title of the show today is Which Will Last Longer, You or Your Money? Oh, boy, what a scary, that's kind of a scary topic, JR. But I'm looking forward to digging in. But before we do, I could not help but notice at the end of the summary of today's show, you noted that feathers will be ruffled. Now, I don't mean to spoil the ending of the show, but I can't help but ask, what do you mean by that? (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Um, Today's program (laughs) 
is all about retirement income sustainability. And it, you know, it goes without saying that this is a topic of great importance to retirees and to people approaching retirement. And in fact, um, we mentioned on the homepage for Nest Egg Guru uh, that retirement portfolio sustainability is by far and away the number one financial planning objective that people have. And the biggest fear and the most common question that consumers pose is, if things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? So that's the topic for today. And it's a topic that I've been immersed in for uh, almost two decades. I've published five papers on the topic. I've read hundreds more. Um, And what I mean by feathers will be ruffled is that there is, in my opinion, a major disconnect between the academic cognoscenti whose research voices dominate the financial planning community today and the perspective of educated, well-read, experienced grassroots financial planners like me. And although I may be an army of one, uh, since this is my two cents, I plan today to use today's show to raise awareness of this disconnect and to present my position that much of the guidance that's being passed down from retirement researchers today isn't necessarily great advice. And by that, I mean, it may actually cause people to run out of money before they run out of time, or to have a lower standard of living in retirement, or a lower remaining balances for heirs than they necessarily should have. So I hope feathers are ruffled a little bit, because whether I'm right or wrong, I really think it's a conversation that the financial planning community needs to have. Wow, absolutely. And okay, then, I can't wait to hear what's in store. Where would you like to begin, JR? Okay, well, um, for me, the the beginning is the, the happy-go-lucky late 1980s and 1990s, uh, which is sort of when I was coming into the business. And um, at that time, the investment landscape was mostly transactional, that is, commission-based sales of stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Financial planning itself was in its infancy. Some might argue it's still not far out of it, but um, that most of the folks who called themselves financial planners at that time were insurance agents who were also selling commission-based products. And there weren't really even all that many people who were retiring. I mean, the wave of retiring baby boomers was still 30 years away. I mean, that began at around 2010, 2011, I think. Um, And at that time, there's a lot going on. The dot-com boom was just beginning. Um, And the planning for the people who were retiring tended to center around figuring out what small amount of money they might need from their current savings, their retirement savings, over and above what they'd be getting from Social Security and pension income. And often the spending plan was simply to live off the 6 to 7% income stream from their tax-free municipal bond portfolio and leave that principal to their heirs. And the prevailing uh, guidance for the stock portion for consumer portfolios, you know, the, the amount they had allocated to stocks was the consumers should start selling stocks as they approach retirement and to manage the stock allocation um, according to the general mantra of 100 minus your age or some variation thereof. And the underlying concept was that you could reduce stock market risk as the time horizon shrunk because you know, the retirees had less time to make up for losses. And so today we refer to that concept of slowly reducing stock market exposure over time as a declining equity glide path. And per the 100 minus your age glide path, so to to illustrate it, a 60-year-old investor would, um, if you're following that mantra, would have just 40% of his portfolio in stocks, while a 70-year-old would have just 30% of his portfolio in stocks. So, um, And at the same time, in terms of spending down stocks, 
there was generally this accept, accepted wisdom that it'd be very difficult to run out of money by sending stocks on a declining glide path anyway, because you know stocks historically return 10 to 12% per year. I mean, that's the average over the last 60 or 80 years. As long as even if future returns average as little as six or seven percent, as long as the spending rate was the same or lower than these averages, the client would never run out of money, or or so we were led to believe. So, Jessica, I know you like to be put on the spot. So, can you think of any reason why this strategy of spending down a portfolio based on the average rate of return on stocks might be disastrously flawed? No, I cannot. I'm trying to wrap my brain, but I can't come up with anything. So I'm going to need your help on this, JR. Okay, not a problem. So, um, and and I should also mention, there's actually, I believe, at least one fairly popular um, personal finance radio personality who still advocates this spending strategy um, in line with the average return on stocks. I'll just say, I don't think it's great advice. I think it's bad advice. So, uh, uh, but Anyway, this misguided spending strategy that many of us were taught 30 or so years ago when we were going through the investment firm training programs is these days referred to as the flaw of averages. And the easiest way to explain the problem, and there are lots of colorful ways where I've seen it explained, but the easiest way that I like to explain it is, um, what if all of the below average returns happened to be in the first half of your retirement period. So you retired and then you had several years of negative returns. And while the stock market, you know, as you could think about it, you, you're probably going to run out of money, right? The stock market will eventually return and regress to its mean, but investors whose portfolios were depleted when the things were going down, never get a chance to recover. And, um, you know, the risk of portfolio depletion due to sharply negative return years in the years immediately following retirement is these days called sequence of returns risk, or sometimes just sequence risk for short. And awareness of the threat posed by sequence risk can be traced to a 1994 Journal of Financial Planning paper titled Determining Withdrawal Rates Using Historical Data. And, um, that paper uh, was written by an unassuming financial planner in California. His name was Bill Bengen. Um, I think I also mentioned him in last week's show uh, when we're, to, I think I used it to demonstrate the potential problems inherent in following the financial independence retire early movement. And um, you know, Bengen's methodology was to go out and analyze portfolio returns for stock and bond allocations that range anywhere from 0% stocks to 100% stocks. And he looked at their performance over rolling 30-year time horizons. And um, the time horizon was chosen basically to reflect the life expectancy of a person who was retiring somewhere around age 60 to 65, you know, normal retirement age. And his model accounted for the rising cost of living. You wanted to adjust for inflation over time too. And the purpose of his, his analysis was he was trying to determine what's the highest annual inflation adjusted withdrawal rate that you could take out and have it last the entire 30-year time period, no matter how bad the investment returns were in any particular point in time. And what he found was that far from a rosy 7 to 10% annual withdrawal rate that many gurus of the day were touting, Bengen found that the maximum initial safe withdrawal rate, or what he called the safe max, was really only around 4%. And that the ideal allocation that would produce that was a constant 60-40 bond allocation that was rebalanced annually in retirement. And this was far more equity heavy than the 100 minus your age rule. And it, um, uh, and it sort of ditched the declining equity glide path approach. I mean, you can see that um, 
uh, portfolio sustainability was much better under the Bengen model. I'm using that 60-40 allocation. And in his paper, Bengen identified sequence risk as the culprit for portfolio depletion at higher withdrawal rates. And his paper was both timely and prescient because legions of people who retired at the end of the 1990s, usually with fat stacks that they'd occurred during, uh, accrued during the dot-com bubble, they got hammered with two huge bear markets um, that happened right, you know, right after the 1990s. From 2000 to 2002, there was a, a 54% decline in the U.S. stock market. And again, from 2007 to 2009, a similar decline. So sequence risk forced many retirees who'd planned a comfortable living and had retired at the end of the 1990s to rejoin the work, workforce in less than a decade. Um, so I think, um, I think maybe this is a good place for us to start have a break, is it? Well, I just want to say that I do remember you mentioning, uh, Bill, uh, Bill uh, in our last show about financial independence and the retire early movement. But as we, as I kind of recall, Jr., you said that there were problems in using that four percent spending strategy, and as as you just mentioned, um, so how, we're going to find out how financial planning evolved since then. And JR, you've been sharing such great financial advice. Our topic today is which will last longer, you or your money? And we're going to dive in even deeper right after the break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteguru.com. Tune in every week for My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. J.R. is the founder of Financial Planning Hawaii and a co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. You'll gain professional insight into some of the hottest topics in financial planning today. And along the way, you'll hear some of the great stories that make learning about personal finance entertaining. Listen for My Two Cents every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. listening to my two cents we'd love to hear from you on the program today call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 if you'd rather send an email the email address is info at fphawaii.com now back to my two cents here again are your hosts jr robinson and jessica lani rich You're listening today to our subject, and which is, which will last longer, you or your money? And we're here with J.R. Robinson. J.R., you were talking about 
Bill Bengen's model. Uh, can you elaborate on that some more for us? Sure. Yeah. So before the break, I was, um, uh, I think we were talking about how um, when I, on last week's show, I was talking about how there were problems in the model that Bengen produced that for, you know, the 4% um, uh, rule and 4% withdrawal uh, safe backs for withdrawing from the portfolio. And, um, and I mentioned that there were problems in that model too. So um, I'll just sort of go over those. So while um, Bengen's paper was really, really valuable in terms of raising awareness of sequence of returns risk, the model itself over time um, has sort of been regarded as that, just that, you know, that, uh, that basic starting point as sort of a flawed tool for guiding investors. And it's sort of interesting because the model has been criticized for both being overly pessimistic in some circumstances and overly optimistic in others. And I'll just explain that. So in, in terms of over-pessimism, subsequent researchers have pointed out that if you're basing your retirement spending off of a withdrawal rate that's designed to be sustainable through pretty much any investment environment, that is investment environments that are worse than anything we maybe have seen in the historical record or on the lines of retiring at the end of 2000 uh, or 1999 before those two big down markets. That the problem is um, that under more historically normal circumstances, which is probably the far more likely uh, event, you end up with large remaining balances for errors at the end, or alternatively, a large portfolio, growing portfolio over time that isn't necessarily maximizing your own standard of living in retirement. So if things are even normal or below average, or even really still bad, you're probably going to um, be able to withdraw more than that safe withdrawal rate and not run out of money. So it's really designed to cover the worst po possible scenarios. And if you're just basing your spending off the worst possible scenario, that's pretty unlikely. It's simply not efficient. It's overly pessimistic, in other words. So conversely, researchers have also pointed out that the interest rates on bonds in the 1990s and throughout most of the 30-year periods that Bengen was testing were obviously much, much higher than the rates that investors could actually reasonably expect to get today, right? So portfolio sustainability was obviously much easier when bonds were contributing 6 to 7%, and back then it was even 6 to 7% tax-free into the pot. Um, with today's yields closer to zero, some researchers have suggested that today's 30-year inflation-adjusted safe backs might actually be as low as like 2 or 3% instead of the 4% or 4% plus that uh, that um, Bengen was suggesting. So nonetheless, I, I mean, I really don't mean to downplay the um, importance of the historical significance of Bengen's paper because it really woke up the financial planning world, including me, and it, it attracted um, academic researchers to the topic of retirement income sustainability. And uh, um, you know, I often say that that black and white photo of Mr. Bengen that accompanied his first paper in the Journal of Financial Planning was the face that launched a thousand research papers because pretty much all retirement income sustainability research today can trace its roots to that paper. As I'm listening to you, I feel like I am really getting quite an education about Bengen's model, which I, I, I'm not a financial planner, and I, I heard about him last week from you. And I'm sure our listeners are really appreciating the importance of, the, of you educating us on the history of, of this. And also, can you tell us how financial planning actually evolved since then? <laughs> sure, absolutely, of course. Um, yeah, and to, to your point, um, I'm really, really good at giving people more information than they ever wanted to know. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> they say you learn something new every day. Well, we're getting more than one thing from you. Well, I said so you're not great. careful. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
So suffice it to say that um, a lot has changed in retirement planning since those halcyon days of the 1980s and 1990s. And one big change in the planning landscape has been the dramatic reduction in the number of companies that offer pension plans to their employees. So you know, companies today, most companies do not offer pensions anymore, and companies today prefer to shift the burden and the liability, for that matter, for retirement income planning to their employees through the 401k plan, and hopefully the company provides a match or some profit sharing contribution, kicks in some money along the way too. But the burden is now shifted to the to the uh, to the consumer. And in terms of um, you know, from a financial planning perspective, the elimination of pensions as a guaranteed source of income. Uh, means that there's a lot more pressure on us financial planners to help make sure that our clients don't run out of money before they run out of time. So in terms of how retirement spending research has evolved, um, I've read scores of research papers in peer-reviewed journals on how to develop retirement spending strategies that both reduce the risk of running out of money and enable consumers to improve their standard of living in retirement above what might be afforded under the 4% rule. And these papers have approached portfolio sustainability from a zillion different perspectives. So um, one common approach has been to design different decision rules to guide portfolio construction and portfolio management over time. And examples of... um, might include rules about changing the asset allocation in response to different market conditions. For example, um, don't sell if bonds, if stocks are down, or that's just a simple rule, but all kinds of variations of, 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 of changing the asset allocation each year, rebalancing monthly instead of annually or every three years, all different kinds of rules like that. They might also involve um, decision rules that govern the amount of spending so that if things are going well, you might the consumer might spend more in those years, but spend dramatically less in, in, if the market environments are, are worse. Another common um, rule set that comes up would be um, changing the inflation adjustment so that if things are going badly in the economy, maybe the consumer doesn't take an, um, an inflation-adjusted withdrawal increase in those years. So lots of, lots of different um, uh, uh, ways to approach that. So what is the consensus for today, JR? What is the best way for our listeners to make sure that they do not outlive their retirement nest egg? Because I'm sure nobody wants their money to run out as they get older. I mean, just the thought of it is scary to most people. True that, true that. But um, yeah, I wish there was an easy answer to that question because you know, to explain the challenge of that question, I'm, I'm actually reminded of a, a funny commercial from the late 1990s. And I, I don't even remember who the sponsor was of the, commer- of the commercial. I think it was maybe a management consulting firm or something. But the commercial begins with the CEO of this company speaking to his management team. And in his hand, he's holding up a thick book and he points to the book. And he's enthusiastic and he proudly recounts how his company has spent a large sum of money hiring the best and brightest consulting minds to develop an incredible plan for the company's path forward. And then at the end, towards the end of the commercial, he theatrically places the book down on the table and he says, in closing, I have just one question. Is it implementable? And then the people around this table start looking at each other nervously. And you can see that the CEO's face drop as one by one. They go, uh, nope, uh, uh, no way. Uh, absolutely not. Mm-mm. And so the story, sir, I mentioned this because the story actually highlights the challenge of translating some of these sophisticated academic design concepts for retirement income sustainability, you know, from paper into the actual practical planning space. And sure. the, <laughs> I mean, just using myself as an example, right? So the notion that a financial planner with 
you know, I've got a little over 100 clients. The notion that I'm going to be able to monitor six different decision rules to adjust my client's monthly portfolio distributions to maximize that client's spending desire while assuring sustainability ain't going to happen. I mean, it's simply not implementable. Um, and this is um, this has led to some institution, I would say, uh, notably Betterment, for example, has suggested that maybe consumers would be better off um, are better served by having spending optimized algorithmically instead of um, through a you know, planning relationship. And I can also tell you that from a behavioral finance perspective, the optimal strategies that may be developed academically and proposed in research are often not palatable at the consumer level. Now, um, an example of that, um, strategies that promise a higher lifetime income withdrawal rate often require consumers to dramatically reduce spending for a number of years if the investment environment is unaccommodating, that is, if the markets are down. And in my experience, it's totally unpalatable to large segments of the retiree population. Most people actually want and expect a stable paycheck in retirement and maybe even a rising paycheck over time, just like they had when they're working. And they're not really up for scaling their income or their standard of living down on demand as the years dictate. So, um, yeah, so that's, um, that's that. Wow. I see what you mean, but is there any sort of consensus in the financial planning community about how consumers can ensure that they do not run out of money before they run out of time? <laughs> um, there is a consensus and I will qualify okay. that by, um, I, I'll, uh, this is this is this is where I'm going with today's show. I'll say that I'm to- yeah. I totally disagree with the way the consensus is developing. Okay, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, you you are just a wealth of information, and I you know giving us the history from the 1990s and 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 it, but you're bringing it forward to today and how it's relevant to to us today. So is it safe to assume that this is part of the program where you suggest that the Feathers may be ruffled. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Although <laughs> anyway, I I'll, so. it might actually be more accurate to say that it's my feathers that are the ones that have been getting ruffled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, can right. you explain that to me? The common, uh, I'm not a financial planner. I'm a common consumer, a regular consumer, uh, but I'm very interested in what you have to say. Sure. Um, so, Within the financial planning space, there are a few academic researchers researchers whose um, voices seem to dominate and even sometimes drown out all others. I'm not saying it's intentional, but they're they're just um, there are the dominant voices for our industry. And when I say academic researchers, all of these gentlemen are PhDs. They're all chartered financial analysts. That's CFAs. They're really smart people. So don't, don't mistake where I'm coming from. And there's no illusion that I'm smarter than any of these people. Um, oh, their but names, you're really smart too, Jr. <laughs> we're not in the same. <laughs> I'll just, I'll, I'll, they're, they're where they are for a reason, and and um, and I'm not. So, but their names are Michael Fink, Wade Fow, and David Blanchett. And they are prolific in their research contributions. And most of their publications show up in tier three journal publications and popular op-ed periodicals that, you know, practitioners like me read to stay current in our field. That's how I stay educated. And these publications include Journal of Financial Planning, Financial Services Review, Journal of Wealth Management, Advisor Perspectives, and and there's a handful of others that aren't coming to mind right away. But um, when I say these researchers have been prolific, uh, David Blanchett, for example, boasts of publishing more than 100 papers over the past 15 years. So I know Uh, he's a researcher. That's what he does. He's a researcher. So um, 
My impression from reading as much as I can of their research is that there is a growing consensus that one, um, consumers should choose a retirement spending model that matches their risk tolerance in retirement and that they should seek to maintain that allocation throughout retirement through annual rebalancing. And in many of the papers I read, the optimal allocation for many retirees tends to be in the 50-50 to 60-40 stock to bond, um, stock to bonds and cash ratio or range. And when you hear talk about allocations as high as 70-30 or higher, they're often derided as being unsuitably volatile. So um, that's one sort of consensus that seems to be forming. Another is that all three researchers have also written articles suggesting that consumers might also do well to incorporate some form of annuity contracts into their portfolios, particularly as a substitute for the bond portion of the portfolio. And these include both fixed rate multi-year guaranteed annuity contracts that might function similarly to um, CDs or bonds. Um, however, these authors have also made a big push for the inclusion of single premium annuity and um, single premium immediate annuity and deferred income annuity contracts that involve an irrevocable election by the consumer to convert a portion of his or her portfolio savings into a lifetime income stream. In other words, they're shifting um, longevity risk from themselves to the insurance company, and they're also shifting their net worth, a portion of their net worth from themselves to the insurance company. And my impression from participating in various discussion forums is that these concepts are being widely adopted in the financial planning community. And in my opinion, these concepts are, I'll just say it, in my opinion, they're horribly flawed and, and represent a disconnect between academic research and practical financial planning. And I will also admit freely that my opinion is probably decidedly in the minority and that in the few times that I've raised an opposing view, I've been met with both derision and condescension. So um, that's, uh, that's where we're at. So, the, you know, like I said, if um, my feathers have been a little ruffled, yeah. Okay, I think your feathers are being ruffled, but how do you defend, <laughs> how do you defend your position, JR? Um. Let's see. Uh, the issues that I have with the current retirement income sustainability, sustainability research dogma um, are as follows. First, I, I believe that this group of researchers' implicit suggestion that constant allocation with rebalancing is an efficient spending strategy is really based more on convention than actual empirical research. In fact, the reason why maintaining a constant allocation through retirement is suboptimal is actually, if you think about it, it's actually kind of intuitive. So if we think about Bengen's um, original paper, he did a marvelous job of highlighting sequence risk in the old model that involved selling stocks first in retirement, right? But what's overlooked, yes. yeah, but what's overlooked in that, however, is that constant allocation spending model also has some exposure to sequence risk. So specifically, according to the constant allocation spending model, retirement spending distributions are usually taken proportionally each month from the portfolio. And thus, if the allocation you're starting with is like 60, 40 stocks to bonds, 60% of the income each month comes from selling stocks. So if you happen to retire before a down market, 60% of your income is going to be selling stocks during times when they're down. So you still have a degree of sequence risk in constant allocation. And, um, so this has led other researchers to consider alternative strategies, um, such as addressing sequence risk by maybe selling bonds first or by including some of those decision rules, like don't sell stocks when they're down is a simple one. Um, and not surprisingly, 
the research that has been done using these strategies actually produce more successful outcomes than constant allocation with rebalancing. Um, however, again, when I've raised these supporting positions in discussion forums, the responses have largely been dismissive. So um, I don't know if we want to take a break uh, break there and, and go to our um, our next break, because I think that's it. we're about at that time. We can pick it up from there. Well, I think, JR, that we, you have certainly covered a lot of ground on this subject. And our subject today is which will last longer, you or your money? Uh, you've given us a, a lot of historical data and education and also gave us some incredibly uh, wonderful information because no one wants their no one wants to outlive their money and we're going to have a lot more information coming up right after the break Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteguru.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in every week for My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. JR is the founder of Financial Planning Hawaii and a co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. You'll gain professional insight into some of the hottest topics in financial planning today. And along the way, you'll hear some of the great stories that make learning about personal finance entertaining. Listen for My Two Cents every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to my two cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich. You're listening to My Two Cents, and today our subject is which will last longer, you or your money? And we're talking to financial planning expert J.R. Robinson. J.R., Let's get back, right back into it. Okay, sure. So, yeah, before the break, <laughs> I was explaining how um, expressing some frustration about the um, emphasis um, on the constant allocation with rebalancing as, a, as an optimal spending model in retirement, when I, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that it's not, and that whenever someone raises an opinion that's um, that to support that, it generally seems to be dismissed in discussion forums. So I'll give you another example of that. Um, in a discussion uh, I had several months ago, I, I cited a few papers on the topic and, and, and um, uh, countered the constant allocation with rebalancing um, 
recommendation, I guess. Um, and one of those was from a paper by a highly regarded economist and professor of mathematics named Michael Edesis. And Edesis has been critical of the wisdom of rebalancing. And um, when I mentioned that paper and cited a couple of other papers, David Blanchett dismissed Edesis as, quote, being on an island in his views. I mean, just outright dismissal. And none, and, and, and nonetheless, I mean, I read lots of articles beyond just the tier three research papers that we read. And a lot of the tier one journal papers that I'm reading all have applied different decision rules about when to sell stocks. And when they're doing that, what they're implicitly saying is that maintaining a static allocation in retirement is suboptimal. So I hope that's not getting too deep in the weeds, but like I said, I have an opposing view and I, and I think it's reasonably well supported by other research. And uh, actually, I know it's controversial, but it's also supportable. Uh, JR, for those people who do not know, because you're in the business and there are a lot of people who don't uh, understand, what is static allocation? So it means um, if you retire in your portfolio allocation at retirement is 60-40, 60% stocks and 40% bonds, that you maintain that allocation every, every year. So each year, 60% of your income comes from selling stocks, 60% comes from selling bonds, and then you know, the value of the portfolio may have changed the allocation in the course of the year. So if, if stocks were down, stocks may be less than 60% at the end of the year. So you rebalance, you sell bonds to buy stocks. So at the end of each year, your, your portfolio remains that constant 60-40 allocation. That's a constant allocation strategy in retirement spending. And that's the model, like I said, I think that that's inefficient, but that is becoming the accepted standard in our industry. Yes, and I'm, I'm glad that you explained that earlier, too. So how is the advice that you're giving different from the mainstream wisdom? Um, yeah, so actually, um, um, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I actually kind of want to finish up on, the, on that segment a little bit more, too. So, um, yeah, before, before the break, I was ex explaining the issues that um, I have with re research that's coming down. And, and another big problem that I have um, with the current state of retirement income sustainability research is the push towards these risk-optimized constant allocation models. And, um, it, and the academic community seems to be insisting upon these using a widely accepted measure of risk, and they measure risk in terms of volatility. In other words, stocks are volatile and therefore they are riskier than bonds, which tend to experience less price volatility, right? And then mm -hmm. treasury bills, FDIC insured cash, they are in the academic literature regarded as a risk-free asset because they have no price volatility. Now, that's the measure of risk that I was taught in undergraduate economics too. So it's not like it's foreign to us, but that is how people traditionally measure risk in academics is through volatility. The problem is that this academic definition of risk is actually very different from retirees' definition of risk. And from the retirees' perspective, the greatest financial risk in retirement is actually not volatility, but it's rather the risk of running out of money. And yeah. the message that I want to convey to the researchers is that they're not wrong. Um, some of the research papers I've cited ex that explored higher equity allocations uh, that is with using either a bonds first spending strategy or a guardrail decision rule to, um, you know, say not don't sell stocks when they're down for, for, uh, for example, but those yeah. researchers freely admit that the portfolios entail greater portfolio volatility than maybe the, you know, the traditional constant allocation 60, 40 model, but they also produced fewer shortfalls and higher portfolio values throughout the retirement time horizon. Um, in other words, you don't really care about the volatility as long as you don't run out of money. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. And you know, at the same time, uh, the research trend towards so-called uh, you know conservative risk-based constant allocation models, including those with equity allocations well below sixty percent, I, I just I find that just to be cons- disconcerting. I mean, uh, as I mentioned. Um, Historic low interest rates on bonds put a lot more pressure on stocks to carry the performance load over time. And um, actually, to his credit, Wade Fow, one of the one of those researchers, I think he even mentioned that in, in a paper. He actually was um, he said, I, th- I think he may have even coined the term. He said, we, we may actually now be facing because of this low interest rate environment, a period of sequence ret- of returns risk in bonds. And so um, that's why it's just baffling to me to see in the planning community. Um, in adopting what looks to be increasingly bond-heavy portfolio allocations when interest rates are this low. So, you know, if you're starting to get the sense that I'm a little bit frustrated by the current direction of, of research guidance um, that's being conveyed to consumers, it's because I am. So, And I hear that. I hear your frustration <laughs> <laughs> loud and clear, but you're also, uh, you know, here to explain why the frustration is there. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, um, um, in terms of uh, other ways that, you know, um, maybe we're, you know, in terms of how I do things that are differently, I think you're, you're about to ask me that question even now. What do I do that's different from that? So what I'm going right. to do now is I'm just going to tell you my two cents because it's my show. Um, so uh, I do not ascribe to these risk-based allocations that are, are commonplace in the profession now, that, um, that these models that apply rebalancing to re- maintain a constant allocation over, over time. I believe the approach significantly increases shortfall risk, especially during periods when interest rates on bonds are at or nor near historic lows. So instead, what I do, instead of p- picking a risk-based allocation, um, I believe in addressing sequence risk by allocating, and this is consumer by consumer uh, basis, allocating between seven or five and seven, sometimes even as many as 10 years worth of clients' expected income needs, not percentage of stocks or bonds, but their own individual income needs that they might need to withdraw from the portfolio, and just setting that aside in risk-free investments, whether it's CDs or treasuries or any, any low volatility investment. And depending upon the client's spending habits, that allocation, at least for the people for whom I work, typically works out to somewhere between anywhere between you know, roughly that 60-40 range um, to as much as 80% stocks and 20% bonds. And yes, you heard it that, that right. Um, that might be a suitable stock bond allocation as long as that 20% represents at least five to seven years worth of expenses banked. And the idea is to always try to keep that five to seven years and not to have to sell stocks to replace income that's been spent following years in which stocks are down. And I really try to do a good job of educating people about that, especially my clients, of course, and about the current state of retirement income sustainability research, which runs contrary to that, and about how portfolio volat- and about the concept of portfolio volatility versus shortfall risk. So while I made... Um, and this year actually is a great year to illustrate that point. So um, obviously, the beginning of this year, we had a major down market uh, and very sudden, right? The stock market lost 37% of its value during the month of March. So if you want a prime example of portfolio volatility and somebody who had that 80-20 allocation, they experienced front row seats for portfolio volatility. Risk is the way the academic community would define it. Now, I do a pretty good job of communicating with my clients during down periods. So that may obviously helps when you're communicating and, and addressing potential fears. But I got to tell you, in that month, I didn't see any great sense of panic among the people that I work for because 
Um, and part of it is, you know, this isn't their first time at the rodeo either. We've been through other major downturns before. But part of it was that they already knew that we they had already planned for this potentially valid eventuality in advance. And they knew that they had enough years of spending banked that the short-term volatility, you know, there's plenty of time for the stock, the stock had ample time to recover before they need to spend stock. So again, their biggest concern is shortfall risk, not short-term volatility. JR, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, some of your clients and those people who can afford five to seven years worth of expected income. What about those people who cannot afford seven years of income? Well, I mean, you ha- if, if you don't have enough, I mean, basically, there are a lot of people who don't have enough saved for retirement. I mean, there's just, it, you yeah. can't retire. You shouldn't retire if you, if you, if you're, if you're poor, I mean, this is a, you know, a national t- statistic, but if you know, the average person who's 50 or 60 years old has $100,000 saved for retirement, well, y- you can't live on that unless you have, you know, your sources of income are going to be social security and that. Uh, my suggestion would be to keep working, to get a part-time job, do whatever you can. You can't live off of $100,000 for 30 years if, and expect to have any significant income from it. Um, you know, unless you're like you said, if you, if you have a pension and social security or you're a teacher, you have a pension or a government worker, you have a pension, different story. But if your sources of income are $100,000 in retirement savings and social security, that, that $100,000 isn't going to last you very long. So, um, I, you know, that's a different subject. But for the people who have actually saved a retirement nest egg, what I'm saying yeah. is of that allocation, instead of just basing it on an arbitrary 60-40 number, Bank six, five to seven years worth of income aside and allocate the rest for long-term growth. So you don't have to spend stocks when they're down. That's the, that's the, that's the concept. It's different from the model that's being advocated by the research community. Uh, I understand. But I, I also wanted to include that other yeah. segment of our population. And I think that what you just said is excellent advice. If somebody's thinking of retiring and they only have, you know, 40, 50, a hundred thousand. Your advice about you know work a little longer uh, addresses that or that particular market as well. The yeah, it is. It is what it is. I mean, a lot of people have no choice but to work to seventy or seventy-five. I mean, you see it all the time, and it's and it unfortunately is a result of the the pension, um, the elimination of pension plans. Right? People have no idea what it takes. They don't know how to save. Pensions were very good at figuring out how much people you know, money people would need. So left to their own devices, people haven't really been very good at it. And the consequence is that you know, most people do not have enough saved to be able to live off of it in retirement. Well, thank you. Thank you for addressing that. I know that we're talking about the, you know, all sorts of things, but I did yeah. want to bring that up as well. But you have other uh, information to give us as well on the subject. Um, correct. So um, I, I think we have a little bit of time left. And um, so... Um, what I wanted to do is to, is to take actually a shot at that uh, the other research trend I mentioned, which is the idea of endorsing the sale of annuity products from insurance companies as part of the retirement spending model too, because I really do have some strong strong views and advice on that too. So, um, you know, on that score, um, uh, where to begin? Um, so, like I said a few minutes ago, I mentioned that those same three researchers have been publishing papers um, encouraging people to purchase immediate annuity uh, contracts. And um, the idea was to address longevity risk. And the concept itself is really simple enough. The consumer transfers cash to an insurance company in return for a promise to pay a non-inflation adjusted income to them for the rest of the consumer's life. And it's popular and people are adopting it. And um, I'll tell you, in my opinion, this guidance really 
potentially understates a large trade-off in wealth, even if the future investment environment is below average. And that's wealth that might be used to improve the consumer's standard of living while they're alive, or that might be left uh, as a remaining balance for their heirs. And, um, and what you're getting in return is really only a nominal longevity gain. And I'm, the easiest way to explain that is to give you an example of real life of, of how that works. So last night I reached out to um, a well-known insurance company. I, got, I asked them for an immediate annuity quote on a $100,000 investment into a joint life contract in which both spouses today are age 65. Simple, simple enough illustration. Um, the illustration showed that the clients would receive $354 per month in distributions and that the contract would repay the principal in 23 years. I'll explain that differently. And this is part of the issue that I have with these contracts. In other words, this couple could match this model simply by putting their $100,000 in a 0% checking account and writing those checks of $354 a month to themselves until they were age 88. Now, of course, one or both spouses might live beyond age 88, which is the whole point of purchasing an annuity contract, but it could also be argued that the odds of being able to grow that $100,000 modestly over a 25-year period of time to provide a better positive return that might even relieve a remaining balance for their heirs is pretty darn good given that time horizon, and I would say far, far better than average. Um, so given that this annuity election is irrevocable and leaves absolutely nothing to the heirs, in the event of both spouses' premature demise, I can actually see how this recommendation, that's like I said, it's commonplace now, might actually be considered malpractice by certain heirs and their attorneys, and especially if like the if the couple dies in an accident shortly after the contract is purchased. So honestly, given the extremely low return on single premium immediate annuities today, I think that the retirement wisdom on this concept is, again, out of touch with consumers um, who we financial planners serve. And I also think it's worth mentioning that there's another un unintended, unpleasant side effect of all of this research that's going on. And that is that we're seeing a big uptick in um, you know, the basically the it's annuity friendly research. And we're seeing a big uptick in their papers being used as sales tools to lend credibility to a whole range of products that really weren't what the researchers were talking about or likely what they intended. And as evidence of this, you can see that there's actually a big spike in fixed index annuity contract sales. And it's basically started around the time these papers become um, getting published. And many of these products are sold with large opaque commissions and the product complexity of them lends themselves well to either being overly simplified in the sales presentation process or misrepresented to consumers. So to borrow a line from Forrest Kump, that's about all I have to say about that. Wow. Well, as we're making our way towards the uh, closing of the show in just a few minutes, I have to ask you this question, JR. Is a million dollars enough to retire? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 think that would, I think that I saw that question come through the other day. It was uh, right during the show uh, for the financial uh, independence retire early movement. And I actually, I don't think we have time to answer that, but the short answer is um, that depends. It, it, it's a lot. It's, it might be enough if you're retiring at age 75. Um, it might not be enough if you're trying to retire at age 35 or age 40, but uh, um, so, yeah. <laughs> Um, wow. Okay. Well, you, you gave us a, that's a, that's a really good answer anyway. And I know that you could talk about that answer probably for another 30 minutes, but maybe at another time as well. You've been listening to My Two Cents with financial planning expert J.R. Robinson. And our topic today was, which will last longer, you 
or your money. I'm Jessica Lonnie Rich. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Two Cents. Be sure to join J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, aloha. Aloha.